ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Is design in living things merely an illusion, as Richard Dawkins asserts? Can the presence of design in living systems be empirically detected? Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Brian Miller. Today, I will conclude a two-part conversation with Dr. William Dembski about his landmark book, The Design Inference, where the first edition was published in 1998. A newly revised and expanded edition of the book has been published by Discovery Institute Press Academic to mark the volume's 25th anniversary. A noted mathematician philosopher, Dr. Dembski is a founding and senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and a distinguished fellow with the Institute's Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Dr. Dembski is a graduate of the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he earned a bachelor's in psychology and a doctorate in philosophy. He has received a doctorate in mathematics from the University of Chicago in 1988 and a master divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1996. He has held National Science Foundation graduate and postdoctoral fellowships. Dr. Dembski has published in the peer-reviewed mathematics, engineering, biology, philosophy, and theology literature. He is the author or editor of more than 25 books. His most recent books relating to intelligent design include 2014's Being as Communion, A Metaphysics of Information, Evolutionary Informatics in 2017, which he co-authored with Robert Marks and Winston Ewart, and his new second edition of the Design Inference, which he co-authored with Winston Ewart. Dr. Dembski, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be with you, Brian. Now, in part one of this interview, we discussed the history behind the design detection framework and how your book, The Design Inference, initially came about. In this episode, we'll focus on the details of the new second edition and what sets it apart what sets it apart from the original edition. Now, why is now a good time to release a second edition of the designed inference? I mean, in a sense, uh, it would have been a good time to release this second edition anywhere, I'd say, within three years of the publication of the first edition. But uh, we weren't in a position to really shore up, improve the ideas, their conceptual reach, uh, I think, until much more recently. So it's, uh, you know, I think any time would have been good. There was there was room for improvement in the first edition. Uh, I think it's now a good time in that there's been a long gestation period. Uh, there's a lot of improvement that's there. I think this really nails it down. I'm not really seeing that there's going to be a need for a third edition. So it's uh, it's a good time uh, that the, the truth gets out, as it were, that the, the, that the, the new and improved version get into people's hands. Now, a, a central topic in all of your literature is how exactly does one detect design? Could you give a very simple overview of the logic behind design detection? Yeah, I mean, there are really two prongs to design detection. Uh, there's improbability and then there's specification, which is the type of pattern that you need in the presence of improbability to, to nail down design. So just about anything that happens is highly improbable. If I th- throw down, let's say, on the floor a thousand marbles and they just are randomly scattered, we don't see any salient pattern in that arrangement 
you know, the precise configuration of those marbles is going to be super improbable. I mean, it could have landed in any number of ways. But if they spell out, you know, welcome to the ID of the Future podcast, uh, that arrangement, you know, it's also highly improbable, but it's, it satisfies an independently given pattern. And when you have that match between the pattern and uh, the improbability, that's what, what nails down design. So that's in broad strokes the method. Uh, just getting clear on what is what is the type of pattern, you know, the, the precise, if you will, mathematical details of the type of pattern that gives us uh, intelligence in the presence of improbability. That required some more doing. Uh, but it's that's that's in broad strokes what it is. Thank you. That was very helpful. Now you have been thinking about the responses of critics for many years, and your new edition really deals with a lot of what you learned over the last twenty-five years and a lot of the concerns that people had. Could you please give us an overview of what is new about the second edition of the Design Inference? You know, I said that what's crucial to Design Inference is getting the right sort of pattern specification and also for something to be improbable. Now, what does it mean for something to be improbable? Uh, the way I cashed that out, I cashed it out in the first edition, was in terms of what I call probabilistic resources. And the idea there is something is improbable only to the extent of the probabilistic resources that are available or unavailable for it. So let's say you have to flip 10 heads in a row with a fair coin. With an hour of coin flipping, you could flip that with be virtually guaranteed to flip it. What about a hundred heads in a row? Uh, if every human throughout the course of human history uh, was doing nothing but coin flipping, it would still be highly unlikely to get a hundred heads in a row. So we all have these intuitions, what's within the reach of chance, what's beyond the reach of chance. But what determines that is the probabilistic resources. How many people do you have flipping? Now, uh, I put that in a human context, but then you can also ask it uh, in terms of the, if you will, probabilistic resources of the universe. So if you imagine every atom in the universe flipping coins, could you then get a hundred heads in a row? And the answer is actually yes. I mean, there are enough elementary particles, enough atoms to make that probable. So, so that was, that was part of the, the deal to nail down what does it mean for something to be improbable. In the first edition, that was, there was a bit of muddiness there because there's, there's a sense of probabilistic resources being connected with the event. And the number of opportunities for an event to occur, but then also the number of opportunities for the event to be specified. So you can think of it this way. Let's imagine that you're looking at an arrow uh, sticking in a bullseye, okay? What's the probability? Is it improbable that that arrow could have landed in the bullseye? Well, you know, it depends. It, it, let's put it this way. It does not depend simply on a single arrow landing in that particular bullseye. It depends on how many arrows in your quiver. So how many arrows did you have to shoot? But it also depends on how many other targets there were on the wall. What if there's another target and the target where the arrow is standing is, is sitting right now in the bullseye? What if the arrow had been in another one of those targets? And so what you have to do is you have to factor in all the different targets and then all the different ways of all the different arrows in the quiver. And at the end of the day, is it still improbable in light of all those 
targets, which are specifications and arrows. And so it's doing that calculus, as it were, uh, to determine whether things are improbable. That's something that I addressed in the first edition. It was a little bit muddy because what I called specificational resources there, it wasn't really nailed down with the sort of accuracy that's needed. It is done with full rigor in this second edition. So getting this, getting what it means for something to be improbable in terms of uh, probabilistic resources, that was crucial. Nailing down uh, what it is for something to be a specification, that was characterized that in terms of minimum description length. Uh, that's clearer because there was a bit of muddiness in the first edition also on that concept because I was trying to do several things with specifications, some of which were, were unnecessary there. Bringing these two notions of specification and improbability together in a coherent information measure, an idea or a concept called specified complexity, that actually did not appear in the first edition. It did appear in subsequent work, but to really nail it down and make it conceptually clean, where it also ties in with existing information theory of the sort that you might see in, for instance, uh, Cover and Thomas's Elements of Information Theory, uh, that, that gets done in the second edition. And then uh, applications to biology, showing how these ideas apply to biology. I think that's just much clearer. Uh, I had written on some of that, for instance, in a 2008 uh, supplemental biology text called The Design of Life, which I co-authored with Jonathan Wells. But uh, yeah, th there was one chapter on that, and it was, you know, when I look at it now, there's some muddiness there. I mean, there's some things, uh, arguments that I was making that really weren't as clear. I mean, I could... Um, you know, so I, I was looking, for instance, as an evol you know, an analogy of evolving sentences, and I really didn't nail down, you know, their unevolvability. Uh, what we did in the design inference second edition is we looked rather at the evolution of words, where you at each point you can change a letter, add a letter, or delete a letter, and at every point you need a word, and can you evolve one word into another? Well, you can do an exhaustive search, and you can show that certain words are unevolvable into others. So it's just a, a much cleaner analysis all the way around. I think it's, uh, you know, I think whereas the other, the previous work was 95% there in terms of rigor and making the arguments, I think this is, what we have in the design inference too is really a steel trap. I think it's uh, it just nails it down. Now, for the second edition, you partnered with a rather brilliant software engineer named Winston Ewart, and you've worked with him in the past. Could you share some of the insights he was able to bring to this project? Yeah, I mean, I've known Winston since uh, probably around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, there was a colleague in the intelligent design world who was his teacher at, I think it was Trinity Western University, Christian school in Canada. And he said, I've got this brilliant programmer. And he was doing some programming uh, in on some problems that were of much interest to me at the time. And so he and I started corresponding. And then I encouraged him to come to Baylor and work with Bob Marks, who I was collaborating with. And so Winston came and got, uh, got ended up getting his PhD in computer engineering uh, at 
uh, at Baylor. And so he and I and Bob uh, would get together for lunch. And, uh, you know, there were several years there, I think, where we were just collaborating on different projects, uh, really extending these ideas of conservation of information, which is an extension, really, of uh, design, the design inference. And uh, But what he did was he took this idea of specified complexity, and I had... You know, it's it's one thing if you the, the way specified complexity was I largely presented it was a was kind of a kludge of two things. Uh, you know, it was an information theoretic notion of uh, you know of pattern. You know, a type type of pattern that you could, in terms of some sort of minimum description length, which would then fall under something called Kolmogorov complexity or algorithmic complexity, and then a more straight up probabilistic notion or Shannon information. But combining those into a coherent whole, I had made some effort toward that in a 2005 paper. But Winston, independently, about five, six years later, uh, approached that problem. It was clear that he saw the need for this also, but he really cleaned some things up in my treatment. You know, it comes at this as a computer scientist. I'm a pure mathematician working in uh, in uh, probability theory, so uh, so it was. It, it became really a, a good collaboration. He had he had a, a stock of information, knowledge to draw from that I didn't, and so the the treatment of specified complexity that you get in this uh, second edition that now marks chapter six, and that's largely Winston's work. Uh, it it really ties it into existing information theoretic literature. So the specified complexity, it's it's a perfectly legitimate information theoretic notion. Uh, you know, and, and I it took me a while to see just how it all hangs together, but uh, Winston's role really was crucial and through so much of the, the writing of it, uh, and I would say I did most of the writing or much of the writing on this second edition, but just his critical eye uh, his quality control has, uh, is evident throughout the book. So, you know, so I'm thrilled that he's been on the project. It's, uh, I think it's a much better and stronger work because of his, his presence. I definitely agree. I think you both did an amazing job on the book. After reading it, everything became so clear to me and also so easy to communicate to others. So I am very excited about seeing your work advanced in many different academic realms. Now, one thing is also interesting is the differences between the first edition, which I thought were very insightful, because in the first edition, you dealt with the issue of patterns produced by natural laws, like a crystal. Could you share a little bit about how you treated that differently in this edition? You know, it's it's funny because we've communicated, and I'm not sure, maybe you can enlighten me how you think I've treated it differently, because... Uh, you know, when I, when I see patterns that are like, uh, crystals, ice crystals, or, you know, things that happen in nature, typically, you know, these are patterns that happen reliably with high probability. You don't have a small probability event working for you. The, the patterns are easily described, so they are specifications, because that's, that's ultimately what we came down on in characterizing specifications there patterns that have short descriptions but uh you know but then with the the naturally occurring patterns those will be uh you know the sort that you just described i mean they they happen reliably frequently 
high probability. So, so I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I see a difference between the first edition and the second edition, but you've, you've obviously read, read both carefully. So what, what am I missing, if anything, here? Well, I think it was really more of the way it was presented in terms of a diagram, because in the first edition, you talked about, uh, or, or in subsequent work also, you talk about, we first have to ask, is this something produced by a law? It's something that's uh, a high probability event. And then you talk about, is it highly improbable? And I guess it may have been something that really clicked, is that when you talk about your chance hypothesis, you're talking about how there's some function, some probability function for the probability of different events you'd expect if design is not involved. And what was very clear in this edition is that that probability function encompasses natural laws. For instance, the probability of a certain outcome would be very, very high if that outcome was produced by some natural process. Like if you're flipping a coin and the coin is loaded, you'd expect there to be heads all the time or tails all the time. So sort of bringing that together in the probability function, in my mind, was very insightful. And also, I thought that really connected it well with Steve Meyer's work because he talks about this grid where something is either chance, it's law, it's chance and law, or it's design. And the idea of chance and law, I see it as really embodied in your probability function for what you'd expect to happen. That's what I thought was very insightful. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. And so I think you're, you're also keying off of this explanatory filter, which was this, uh, this way of adjudicating between what in the first edition, I think it was necessity or law, regularity. You know, I've varied the, the language over time uh, because I've recycled the explanatory filter, but it's it's this uh, flowchart with three decision nodes as, as I originally presented it. You know, so is it is it law-like? You know, is it the result of chance? Uh, you know, because it's and then if it's improbable and specified, then it's the result of design. So basically, you're adjudicating between chance, design, and necessity. And what I do, or what we do in this second edition, is really collapse chance and necessity into one. And it's uh, the idea is something is if it's necessary or if it's the result of law, it has not high probability or probability one. You know, so it's still a probability. You can characterize events that are necessary with probabilities, but it's just the probabilities all collapse to zero and one. So conceptually, it just ended up being clearer. And to your point about Steve Meyer, you know, we'll say chance, necessity, or chance and necessity. All of that gets rolled into chance as we're uh, describing it in the explanatory filter in this second edition. So it's, again, I think it's conceptually cleaner. It, it handles handles the Darwinian case where you've got chance and necessity, you know, necessity is being given by natural selection. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's uh, a general framework. I'm not sure. I think, it, I think what's in the second edition ends up being cleaner because uh, I think there's more cause for stumbling when you have this three-part filter because, you know, then it, it can seem like, well, there's necessity, there's chance, but what about that combination? And that combination you, you get it, it can be described as chance broadly conceived, you know, so it's this, this new explanatory filter handles all of that. And I think it addresses some, some of the critics that were trying to say, well, the filter really doesn't cover all the explanatory options or doesn't, you know, or 
handles them in a way where it makes them mutually exclusive and exhaustive. And anyway, there, there's a whole body of literature. The explanatory filter uh, is is probably what people uh, best remember of the design inference, if they remember anything, you know, from from back in the day. And that's uh, there's there's a big critical literature on it. So anyway, I think that's cleaned up as well in the second edition. And the other part I thought was absolutely brilliant was how you dealt with the issue of specification language. Could you expound upon that a bit? This was the the challenge. I mean, really, what what is it that gives us a specification? What guarantees that it's the type of pattern that we could come up with, uh, and where where it's not that we're just making it up based on the event. I mean, that's that's the the challenge always that. You know, there's that the, the pattern is being read off of an event rather than that it has some sort of uh, objective independent existence. And the way we get at that is to say the, the patterns that are specifications are those that have a short uh, description length. And that uh, it, it ends up exactly nailing it. So, you know, you can think of it. I mean, one example and. uh you know, take poker, for instance. There are about 2.6 million different poker hands. Um, if I tell you a pair, you know, so a poker hand where I'm just going to say there's there's one pair in your hand, or I tell you uh, Royal Flush, those descriptions are roughly the same length. But Royal Flush narrows down the field from 2.6 million to four hands, whereas if I just tell you a pair – I've narrowed it down to maybe one one million, you know. So it's the probability is two fifths rather than one in seven hundred thousand or something like that. So, so even though they have the same description length, the to say royal flush gives you it narrows it down much more. It gives you a much smaller probability of an event matching that description, and so it's the the short descriptions. That are nonetheless that identify nonetheless highly improbable events. Those are the ones that are the specifications and that trigger the design inference. And we see this across contexts. I mean, many different contexts. So even in the biological world, for instance, uh, you know, if we're looking at proteins, uh, what makes proteins interesting? Well, you know, it's uh, you've got amino acid sequence joined by peptide bonds that fold. Okay, so this property they fold. That's easily described, and yet most amino acid sequence joined by peptide bonds don't fold. So immediately you have a you have a specification and you have a small probability event. Now the, the Darwinist will come back and say, well, yes, that's if you're just randomly joining amino acids, but you have to factor in evolution uh, by natural selection of you know some sort of molecular natural selection. And so then we have to deal with that as well. But the, the point is that it's these short descriptions that are the ones that give us the specifications. That's, uh, that's really, you know, that's, that's key to the idea of specification and then key to these design inferences. Now, that is present in the first edition. I call it a tractability condition there. And I cite Komagoro of complexity, but there's, there's another condition that I introduced. It ended up being extraneous. I call it a conditional independence condition. And so there was just, it was, it was just pretty muddy 
Uh, it was cleaned up to some degree in the sequel titled No Free Lunch, but uh, I think this this is this is now the canonical place for what what a specification is, namely the second edition. Now, now you gave several examples in the book. Could you just give uh, one example, your favorite example? Uh, or perhaps two, of how is it that your framework can be applied to a real-world situation? <laughs> well, you and I corresponded, and one one example that, that you wanted me to speak to was, uh, you know, The Empire Strikes Back versus uh, the Mel Brooks co- parody of uh, the Star Wars trilogy. Uh, wait, wait, those those weren't documentaries? I, I thought that was a... Oh, my mistakes. I'm, I apologize. Yeah, well... <laughs> So sorry to disabuse you, but uh, yes, uh, but uh, yeah. So in, in the Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader tells Luke Skywalker, "No, I am your father." So he identifies himself as your father. You know, your father is a short description, and answering to that short description, well, there's only one person, and that's him. So it would be highly, you know, of all the people in the universe, since we're not even talking Earth, you know, at this point, you know, to have somebody who's his father. That would be highly improbable. So the meeting of Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in that exchange, I think we could say it's not by chance. But, uh, you know, but then in this uh, movie, uh, Spaceballs, you have the, the dark helmet, who's the uh, Darth Vader character, meets with Lone Star, the Luke Skywalker character. And uh, in that case, Dark Helmet tells Luke Skywalker, I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate. Okay. Uh, so that's a long description. And the thing is, when you allow yourself long descriptions, you can characterize things that are highly improbable. Uh, in, uh, you know, it's, it's thought that uh, humans are, I think everybody across the world is connected by six degrees of separation. So I know somebody who knows somebody else who knows somebody else who knows somebody else who knows somebody else who knows anybody, you know, so I can, I could, I could, I, I can connect myself to anybody in the world that way. Eight, eight billion people connected to, to me and to you and to everybody, uh, by these six degrees of separation. So, uh, so that's why it's the long descriptions that, that's where it becomes artificial. It becomes factitious. That's why we don't take those types of uh, patterns seriously because they can be adapted to the events in question. They can, they don't give us the the safeguard that they are a consequence of design when they occur. occur. They could be the consequence of design. You know, things that appear to be the result of chance could nevertheless be the result of design. I may place a penny down deliberately so it lands so heads faces up but if you just saw heads facing up you could say well it's it could be the result of chance and chance tends to be the default explanation we go with chance we eliminate it in order to get to design so i wouldn't say that design is an explanation of last resort but we give chance the first opportunity you know we you know if you're a detective You'd prefer to explain a death by natural causes, you know, then things are easy. If it's not by natural causes, then you've got an investigation and a lot of paperwork. 
And I really thought that was such a insightful analysis you did with this issue of description length. Because when I look at the idea of a design inference, uh, what I've learned from you and others is that one, you have events that are low probability, but they're also events that somehow are recognized as being special by a mind. And what do, what do societies do? They give words special meaning to what they describe as significant, like father, which reduces the, it reduces the number of people in that context greatly. So I thought that was incredibly insightful. Now, I know that you have gave a bit of a preview of the next book you want to write in this book. Could you share a little bit about what your next book will be and some of the content in it? Yeah. So the next book also to be co-authored with Winston Ewart is on conservation of information. And conservation of information really keys off of the design inference. And here's how I would say it works. Um, usually, I mean, what, what happens in this debate with Darwinian biologists, they will argue that natural selection is a probability amplifier. So usually they, they won't argue that biological systems are specified. But what they'll say is, but if you really understand what the evolutionary process is doing, it, it makes things that seem highly improbable actually reasonably probable. And that's why Richard Dawkins in the sequel to the design uh, to the blind watchmaker will write a book called Climbing Mount Improbable. You can't get up, up Mount Improbable in one fell swoop, but if you can find a serpentine gradual pathway up the backside, you can get to the top. So that's why I say the, the evolutionary mechanism is supposed to be a probability amplifier. But here's then how that works in, try, in refuting design. He gives an example, which has been very widely cited and which, which I've uh, you know, analyzed at length. Uh, he considers the phrase from Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, methinks it is like a weasel. And you can think of it, uh, I think it's got 28 characters in spaces. Let's think of all the characters as just capital Roman letters. So you've got 27 possibilities at each place, 28 uh, letters in spaces. And if you were just to uh, try to, by purely randomly taking Scrabble pieces and forming methinks it is like a weasel, it would require, uh, it's, it's an improbability of about 1 in 10 to the 40 at each step. So on average, it would take about 10 to the 40 attempts. You know, that would be the waiting time to get to that sequence. He thinks it is like a weasel. But you could also do what Dawkins does. He says, but that's not how evolution works. It doesn't, it's not pure randomness. What you do is you have as it were, a hill climbing mechanism where you look at, you know, how close is a sequence to the target sequence? He thinks it is like a weasel. And then you randomly vary the sequences, the sequence of letters and spaces where you are now. And if it's closer, you keep. If it's not, you discard. And so it's kind of, he introduces a natural selection, quasi-natural selection scenario to describe this. And then he says, see, Evolution can get us to me thinks it is like a weasel from this uh, from a purely random starting point, uh, and that's how it works. Okay, that's how it overcomes these improbabilities. Now, I think there's there's a, there are lots of problems with this this whole scenario. For one thing, you know, you could have said, well, why is it me thinks it is like a weasel that you're going to be rewarding that sequence, you know, in proximity to it? You could have 
rewarded proximity to anything. It could have been a random sequence. So, but here's, I think, the real problem. Okay, so let's say you you have this way of evolving to me thinks it is like weasel with high probability. What is the information that you needed in order to get that high probability evolution to happen? There were a whole set of different possible fitness landscapes that you could have chosen. So you chose one out of all of those. That search for the search, if you will, is just as improbable as the original search, okay? Maybe I'm complicating things a little bit too much. Think of it this way. Uh, you're, you have an Easter egg hunt search. The Easter egg is in a large, large field. It's hidden well. And it is, the field is so large that an exhaustive search, a random search is not going to find it, you know, except there's a highly, highly improbable event. You should never expect that to happen. You know, it's like finding a red grain of sand in, in a world of sand that's uh, where only one grain of sand is red. Okay, but now you're wandering around the field and somebody is telling you, you know, warmer, colder, warmer, hotter, colder, hotter, hotter, hotter. You're burning up. And then you look down and there's the egg. Okay, so what has happened? What were those instructions? Warmer, colder, warmer, hotter. What were they doing? They were giving you information, guiding you to that egg. But notice what's happened. The initial problem was very difficult finding that, that egg, highly improbable. But now I've given you instructions. But how did I get those instructions to give you? Okay, turns out the instructions that will get you to the egg sit in a space of possible instructions. They're a search for the search. You know, I'm searching for a set of instructions which will then allow you to find that egg. And that search for the search problem is no easier than the original problem. That's the upshot of conservation of information, that when a Darwinian mechanism, when a search succeeds, which otherwise would be highly improbable, when it when it's the by becoming more probable, there's a probability cost in making a, an improbable search probable. And the probability cost of going from an improbable search to probable search is the same essentially as the original improbability. And you can, you, there are, we've proven these as theorems. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, uh, airtight. I mean, this, this whole approach. And, you know, it really, it was prompted because you, by the work of people like Dawkins with his methinks that is like a weasel example and other, uh, people who were using evolutionary computing to try to refute intelligent design. So there was, for instance, an article in Nature in 2003 where they were touting a program called Avita, which was supposed to generate things that were quasi irreducibly complex. So they were using the, these results to argue against Michael Behe's notion of irreducible complexity. But when we looked at these programs, we always saw that they were introducing information into the program that was giving them the results that they were getting. And so it was by looking really empirically at all these programs that were uh, slipping in information which they claimed to be getting for free that we proved these conservation of information results. And uh, that's uh, so it's that's what conservation of information is about. It's as it were a two makes makes the whole design inferential uh, critique of evolution, the two-pronged approach. On the one hand, there's specified complexity, which will show that these systems are uh, designed. But if you want to say, argue that 
The Darwinian mechanism is a probability amplifier, then you still have the conservation of information problem because what makes the Darwinian mechanism in that case successful, what it allows it to overcome these improbabilities, what allows it to climb Mount Improbable is some additional information. As it were, you know, the, the Darwinist in a sense says, you know, but we've got this, this, uh, this mechanism that gets us these things with high probability. But they don't ask, well, where do you, how do you get mechanisms that give you with high probability things that otherwise are improbable? And it turns out getting them is at least as improbable. So there, and that's why it's conservation of information because the, the information at best it's conserved, you know, and actually in many cases, uh, when you do a search for the search, when you're searching for the information that gives you a successful search, the, the, the information cost is even greater than the original search. So it's, uh, so conservation of information in a sense is the best that you can do. But these, these are theorems. We've proven them. Uh, you can find them in the IEEE literature, standard engineering literature. Uh, so this is, this is peer reviewed, established stuff. This is, this is not just hand waving. And I, I'm really, uh, I was really amazed at the impact that you and your colleagues have made because if you go back 20 years, people would say these evolutionary algorithms, like you mentioned, demonstrate the power of evolution to be created. But what you have shown as, as well as your colleagues is that they don't, that you have to smuggle information into these p programs about the target for them to hit interesting targets. That's right. So that was just a remarkable achievement. Uh, well, uh, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to explain the design inference, the second edition. And uh, we really look forward to the third book that comes out. Good. Well, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. And for you listening, uh, you can get your own copy of this important book at thedesigninference.com. That's T-H-E designinference.com. And if you missed the first part of the discussion where we talked about the history behind the first book, you can go back and tune in to hear the first part. For ID the Future, I'm Brian Miller. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.